From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenFin23 in Boston, Massachusetts. On this week's edition, the sights and sounds of GreenFin23, who's winning the EV charging wars, a new code of conduct for buying carbon credits, and some changes for this podcast. It's the end of an era, this week on 350. It's June 30th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're always so glad to have you with us. And sitting right next to me here at the Omni Seaport Hotel in Boston, it's our very own Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. You just made me very nostalgic for the fact that I never saw David Bowie in concert. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sitting here being sad now. I don't want to be sad. Well, if you're going to be sad, there's some other things to be oh, sad about. I know. But, but let's, before that, let's just uh, celebrate this another week, another mm-hmm. event, another great group of, of humanity coming to uh, Boston, uh, 800 or 900 strong uh, for Greenfin 23. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting as we develop these uh, new markets and these new events that uh, people, and I've said this before, they said this originally with Verge. Um, you know, the first year, people are learning a new language. The second year, people are actually now talking in sentences. And I think we're at the fi- point now, we're finally talking in paragraphs mm-hmm. and thoughts and, and, and big ideas. Um, it's a really interesting time for this Greenfin conference, given uh, a few things. First of all, the political pushback, the headwinds, as we've been talking about all week. Um, but also the fact that on Monday, uh, so momentous, um, the, the International Sustainability Standards Board finally released uh, this, it's called S1 and S2, there's two standards uh, for corporate sustainability reporting, global standards. This is what we've been waiting for, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of companies have been waiting for, certainly I know a lot of you listeners, uh, for this standard that's going to be applicable across uh, sectors, across borders. Um, and developed by a lot of, of the people around the world, putting in a lot of time with this. Um, and so that, so in that context of, of all these things happening, it's, um, it's just been an interesting week. Well, Heather, what's your takeaway? Yeah, for sure. I was speaking to people about the standards a little bit, but you know, for, for the foreseeable future, we still have many, many um, reporting exercises that each of those teams needs to do. CDP, I mean, like just, just the list, yeah. right? And I, I I shouldn't pick out any one, but that was the one that well, was top of mind. ISSP. I mean, there's a, there's a whole. Bunch. So, I mean, I think it's great, but I also think it's going to take a while to get there, and um, you know exactly what some of these uh, legislative mandates. You know what happens here in the United States with the SEC and where does Scope Three stand? And so there's a yeah, there's a whole realm of questions that remain and will remain for the foreseeable future. But yes, it's definitely a momentous occasion. I also took some hope away from the, you know, what I heard a lot at the event was sort of how to get around the ESG debate, right? So we know that it's kind of a dirty word and people don't want to use it. And there's people that are saying it's over. And we had Larry Fink come out and say he was ashamed this week um, to be using the term and 
you know, but, but really it's, it's about, it comes down to the value of a company and what is the value of a company? Where do they need to be focusing? And I think that will be the North star. And I think that if, if business leaders across the C-suite can remember that and remember that they need to be thinking about risk and there will be environmental risk and there will be social risk and there will be governance risks and they have to just really think about risks and what mean, yeah. what is material for their business. And if they grasp onto that, then they should be able to navigate this rough sea, if you will, and, and come out in, in a calmer one on the other side. So I think it's, it's prevailing, it's persistence and, and, you know, people just need to prevail and kind of get themselves through it. So I feel, I felt actually kind of optimistic about that yeah. after this week. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, and the reporting piece was only part of what Greenfin was about, right. uh, because the other piece of that, which in some ways, I think, you know, now that we have this, this draft, well, the standards have come out and this, yes, it's the process is going to take some time. And then sometime this year, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission will come out with their carbon uh, disclosure rules of some sort. Um, and that'll start to settle down. But what's really interesting to me is where's the money going to come from mm -hmm. for this transition? Um, yeah. I read a piece I don't have it in front of me here. Uh, just in the last uh, couple of weeks, someone at the World Bank said that biodiversity finance is growing faster than climate finance. And climate finance is growing fast, arguably not fast enough. So the, the, the so whether that's exactly true or, or, or a little hyperbole, the issue of the, the, the finance piece of the climate and biodiversity crises is really starting to come to the fore. And it's not just the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. It's not just venture capital. It's this whole capital stack uh, that we touched on a little bit this this year, but I think is going to become more and more the focus. Yeah, it's so funny you should mention that because I, as I was speaking to some, I mean, this is two thoughts. One is AstraZeneca this week announced like a $400 million investment in biodiversity yeah. and in, you know, ecosystem redevelopment and so forth. And it was pitched as an investment, you know, not like a philanthropic donation. So that was interesting to me. But also I was, um, when I was speaking with some individuals about reporting, the need to have much better metrics around water mm. and around your land impact, uh, whether that's trees or a coastal ecosystem or whatever, I think is going to be more, you know, so that that's actually probably the next phase of reporting, the mixed frontier of reporting too. But yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's exciting. It's actually really exciting, I think. But also daunting because, yeah, where is the money going to come yeah. from? We can't seem to agree on blended finance, which is what, what it's about. Well, I think we're going to see new kinds of finance. I think you, you talked about the investment versus philanthropy. I think we're going to see public sector, private sector endowments, you know, philanthropy blending in some new ways. Because there's a lot of these things that are not business investments per se, like coastal restoration and uh, or coral reef restoration or, and uh, mangrove swamps and other things that, that mitigate the impacts of climate change, but are public goods. Who's going to pay for that? And not to mention, how do we do this globally, particularly in countries that can't pay for it themselves? So this is, I think, one of the great uh, challenges and a massive unprecedented multi multi-trillion dollar opportunity that uh, we I think we're going to be exploring and for a long long time yeah so that's the story here at Greenfin but we've got some other changes afoot Joel <laughs> and I just wanted to to um, 
ask you to share with our audience what's going on with you. Yeah. You've, you've had some pretty big news this week. Yeah, some big news. I, I've been thinking about this for months, announced it uh, publicly this week that um, I'm about to do something I have not done in my 48 years as a working professional, which is that I'm going to take a couple months off, sort of calling it uh, two things. One is a sort of radical um, <laughs> because it's not going to be completely off. We've got a, a Zencation. A, a Zencation, yeah. Um, but I also call, I wrote a piece this week, I called it My Mental Rewilding. You know, rewilding, as you probably know, is, you know, how we restore uh, a lost or degraded habitats uh, and then and even species. And um, uh, but you do, either do that by planting some new things there and, and hoping they regenerate or just leaving it fallow and letting it sit and seeing what sprouts. And it's kind of what I'm sort of going to do for July and August. Um, is sort of sit and let things sprout. And I'm not going to sit still. I've got some ideas and some projects I want to do. But the implication of that, two two pieces of that, um, one is that uh, the weekly newsletter I've been writing for, I don't know, 15 years, a column and two steps forward. Um, I'm going to stop doing that for not just the summer. And and Dylan Siegler, our, our, our colleague who's a, a vice president for uh, sustainability, the profession of sustainability, I can't remember her exact title, uh, is going to be taking that on with her terrific team uh, of, of five or six people who are going to be contributing to that. And then this podcast. Um, uh, this I'm going to step away from this and hand it, as you know, Heather, to you to take the reins of. And, and as part of that, um, I know uh, you decided uh, and the team decided to, to take a hiatus for the summer and to come back uh, in the fall, no specific date yet, with uh, well, I'm sure it'll be a new format and probably a new name from 350. We don't know. Uh, it's all up in the air. So um, this is uh, the last podcast of, of 350. Um, and it's our last podcast together. Which is so sad. It's sad. Like it's the nostalgia. end of a, it is the end of an era. And you know, let's 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 get into a little bit more of that at the end of the show. We'll, we'll say what needs to be said. <laughs> we want to say. Um, but um we'll, we'll get into that. But we've got some uh, some great things. There's always um you've uh, pulled some clips from the main stage as you do so well, and, and we'll we'll get to those in a few minutes. But you know, let's let's before we uh, come to a close, let's do what we've always done and visit the week in review. So, Heather, let's start with you with three <laughs> words plastic eating enzymes. Now, uh, you know, it sounds exotic, but the thing, the reality is, is that. We've been t I've been hearing about, mm -hmm. you know, enzymes that eat plastic yeah. for really a couple decades. Uh, yeah, maybe a couple decades, certainly for quite a number of years. And um, and it, it, and you have something here that involving uh, Lululemon, Patagonia, Stella McCartney and Puma. Um, what's going on? Why is this? What's different this time? So, yeah. So what's different is a couple things. One is that I think um, the the dialogue has shifted as, as you know, as you're actually better aware than I am because you've covered sort of the advanced recycling, the, the chemical recycling of plastics um, much more closely than I have. There's, there's obviously the two sort of most accepted or known paths to take existing plastic and textiles and put it in a different form so it can be reused is the mechanical and the 
advanced chemical recycling as it, it's now become known. This is a... It's also called uh, molecular recycling. Molecular recycling. Yeah. There's a lot of different terms for it. And it, it, it's kind of evolving partly because it's been kind of criticized. Well, um, the, the, what's called advanced recycling is often just burning plastics it's for burning energy. plastics, but it's also anything that... that um, any process is using solvents to break up plastics. Many of those require a lot of energy. So it's, it's just, it's been, a, it's, there's questions about it. Um, and this is a different approach, right? So enzyme, enzymatic approach, biotech, it's sort of the frontier of, of innovation that we're seeing around biology and new chemistries and so forth. It's, it's exciting for me. It's like a, the field of um, green chemistry, I think is, is one that's, it's very underappreciated and you, you, again, something you know a lot about, but to, to this point, there's a couple of uh, fashion companies that have started uh, allying themselves with some startups in the, what they're calling enzymatic uh, recycling of plastics. And there's three startups in particular, Samsara Eco, Carbios, and Protein Evolution. And the, the first two have made some pretty big deals. So Samsara Eco just signed up with Lululemon. Um, Lululemon is putting money into them. They haven't said how much. In order to take basically textiles like old yoga pants, old, you know, <clears throat> apparel, athletic apparel, and turn it into, break it down into the, the base, very basic components and then reuse it. The pitch is that these monomers are much more um, virgin-like, if you will. They have the qualities of a virgin molecule and that they can be reused more times and that they can go one-to-one. So Lululemon is, um, and I never know how to pronounce that name, that's right, that's right, but you know. uh, that they are, they are teaming with Samsara Eco. Samsara Eco is out of Australia. They also are um, working on plastic bottles and so forth, as, as are many of these companies. But this is a, a focus on textiles. Carbios, which is probably the most commercially advanced of the, of the three, they're out of France, they are the ones that are working with Patagonia, Puma, and they have this incredible ecosystem. They have a deal, for example, with Novozymes, which is going to actually produce their enzymes. So they have, like, if you will, a distribution partner to, to create them. Um, and they have just announced financing for a, a, commercial, fail, a commercial scale facility in France um, that they've moved on to that phase of development. And then the other company is Protein Evolution. They're out of Connecticut. And they've signed a deal with uh, Stella McCartney. So they're doing research together with Stella McCartney. So what I liked about all three of these startups is they were very closely allied with a large corporation that could actually use the technology. So I don't know. Is it a tipping point? I think it's a tipping point in terms of possible textile to textile recycling. Um, we have to see the money come in. We have to see the them move from the lab into commercial scale. It's definitely going to take a while. But... But um, there seems to be a, a shift happening. And, you know, one of the value propositions of this approach is that it doesn't use the solvents and it also is, usually doesn't require as much heat. Yeah. So it's a, supposed to be less energy intensive. Yeah. I, I, on one hand, I love this. On the other hand, I think I, I'm a little bit skeptical here that because um, this does come around every couple of years. It's another Fast and Furious movie, <laughs> you know, Fast, Fast and Furious plastic 18 this time yeah. we're serious uh you know you talk about the fact in the piece that there's 391 million metric tons of plastic mm -hmm. produced worldwide and and uh you know how much of a dent can we make i i hope 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 that this is uh, and it's great that brands are, are are stepping into this um opportunity 
it's really going to be, you know, when when some the big players, when the Gaps and Levi's and 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 mm. others and Zara and and you know step into this and really start to embrace these technologies. Uh, I mean, I love I love the fact that this is what we're getting to, and and this is how we get to a circular economy is breaking the molecules back down to their identical uh, chemical you know, composition as you would have with virgin. So yeah, I hope I hope hope hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, we have to hope because yeah. if we don't, then we don't move forward. Yeah, but we also want to make sure that as you do and as you did in this piece is is put it in perspective that. It's it's still you know I, I, somebody once said the term pilot washing you know yeah. which is like everyone's you know you, you do a pilot project and you scream it from the rooftops and 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 assume that it, people assume that this is the new thing and yeah and it may continue it may not or it may scale very slowly over time um, so um, as we hear the sirens in the background we know this is this is this is a fire drill and we need to be moving a lot faster <laughs> so. Um, so let's move on to another story written by uh, senior editor Jesse Klein on a new code of conduct for buying carbon credits. And yes, this is like plastics and enzymes, and this is another perennial story about how do we bring some assurance and some verifiability and some credibility ultimately to carbon markets. And there's this new voluntary carbon market integrity initiative that's... Um, Another very long name, but so be it. Uh, with its uh, claims code of conduct, and you know, it's it's an important time. There's a, a scathing piece from uh, from Joe Rom, who's always been a uh, a provocative uh, voice out there. Uh, uh, that's uh, written from the Penn Center for Science Sustainability in the media. It says our carbon credits unscalable, unjust, and unfixable, and a threat to the Paris Climate Agreement. I think by the by virtue of the title, you know the answer is um, he's not going to write a whole piece saying no, and that's not Joe's style. But um, you know, carbon credits have been justifiably under attack for a while. So um, I mean, do you want to? Fill us in a little bit on what this code of conduct is yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 uh, they're supposed the framework. It, what it aims to do is um, really focus on when companies can credibly make voluntary use of them, right? So, like, what are the scenarios in which it's it's appropriate, and what can you say about them? Mm-hmm. So, I think it what it's trying to do is really step back and say, okay, companies, um, you're using. We know that many of you use them. In which case does it make sense for you to use them? So in other words, you can use them to offset an activity. This is a reasonable circumstance in which you may be able to do that. This this doesn't fit. You shouldn't use credits for this purpose. And then, okay, how can you talk about them? So that that, that at its very high level is what it's trying to do. Um, and really, I think it's just it's just part of this whole framework in general that's, that's really trying to um, help make it easier for companies to navigate. And then also um, there's like a- apparently some plan to, to create different tiers of, of lab, you know, saying, saying that you could be, uh, you know, okay, you're using carbon credits and you're at a practice level. That's a silver level. And this is what your certification is, if you will, that you can talk about um, at the silver level, for example, companies purchase high quality credits for between 20 and 60% of their remaining emissions after making progress. The gold tier um, requires purchasing 60 to 80% of emissions and platinum is more. So it's like, it's this kind of weird tiering structure. I don't 100% understand it. I need to spend more time with the framework myself, but 
the the bottom line is that they're trying to um, you know say that we're making a claim and and it's a VCMI claim and therefore it's more yeah. credible than just your general claim. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that uh, the, this new carbon, this init- new initiative, is they work closely with Science Based Target Initiative, mm-hmm. CDP, the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. Um, so what's what's encouraging here is when these uh, these these big organizations that have really uh, themselves been the standard setters uh, come together to, to set a, a standard among themselves, or at least to agree on the terms of this and support the ICVM in this new code uh, claims code of practice. Um, that's encouraging. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, again, more to come on that. Um, uh, but let's, you know, the, the theme I, this, this week, uh, the story seems to be uh, collaboration um, and, Yeah, no, I think I think what the only thing I was going to say is I just want to think it's worth pointing out who's involved with this from a corporate level, like Etsy, Boeing, Vera, I mean, Salesforce, I mean, those and and I think, um, you know, there's assurance as well. So collaboration, assurance and so forth. Yeah, Yeah. that's the only thing I wanted to add. Yeah, that's great. And they plan to have uh, their hope is to have a group of companies stand up on stage at the COP28 later this year. To uh, to say announce that they're part of this uh, uh, making claims uh, based on this standard. So, but yeah, I was saying uh, you know with the collaboration with the plastic eating enzymes, the collaboration mm. with these this new code of conduct, and and now we've turned to the, the other story from uh, uh, Vartan Badalian, our director of transportation at, at Greenbiz Group, about this new collaboration. And this emerging uh, de facto standard, uh, hopefully uh, on vehicle charging, and uh, you know this is is again non-trivial. There's a, a report that came out from uh, National Renewable Energy Lab just a few months ago saying that um, that they found that a national network in 2030 needs to be composed of between 26 and 35 million charging ports. So a given charging station could have multiple or even dozens uh, or even a hundred or more. And, and mm-hmm. I've sort of seen some plans for some very large, you know, what we used to call gas stations are now become charging uh, right. facilities. Uh, uh, 26 to 35 million of them to support 30 to 42 million uh, electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a huge, huge need. And, you know, the question is, you know, we went through this with uh, cell phones. Uh, there was a GSM and CDMI, these two standards that competed. We went with this with, you know, Betamax versus uh, VHS tapes. You know, there's two two organizations that come up and and sometimes they become one standard. Sometimes we live with two. And so that's now uh, seeming to be the story here uh, as Ford and GM and others have adopted Tesla's North American charging standard. And then there's the CCS1. Um, I'm looking here to remember. Oh, it's the Combined Charging System 1 that um, is, is sort of the, the the other one. And so now we're into this... Uh, this race, I guess, or maybe we just live with two, but hopefully we get to one. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got to one with gas stations. There's a certain size uh, uh, nozzle fits in tanks, and if it's unleaded, it's a different size, so it makes sure you don't put leaded gas in an unleaded. You know, all this stuff that exists has existed for years we take for granted. How's that going to play out with vehicle charging? Yeah, so I think for, for me, what's interesting here is that also the electric – so it's not just a car – the automotive makers, the OEMs, if you will, it's the uh, the charging folks, right? And so ABB is one of them. So they they're talking about it in this story and how they're um, adapting their their technologies to make sure that 
they're supporting this. Um, it's it, they they also though want to make sure that there's financial incentives around this. Um, I, I think it comes down to, and this, this is like one of the reasons that that this is that the Tesla approach or or the as you will the North America. I forget what is it called. Uh, I can. It's this is sorry folks, but an acronym. Sorry, I can't remember them all. North American charging standard, right? So this is Tesla's, the NACS. That's one of the things that Joel, Joel was just referencing. But the, um, the the things that matter there are the round-the-clock connectivity, the preventive maintenance, and that because that's been a big deal with charging stations. You know, people going and then it's broken and they can't charge, and all of a sudden they're in the middle of nowhere with no way to charge. People that can actually fix the the um, the chargers then the people that are trained and availability of spare, spare parts so like a coalescing so that's sort of the ripple effect of these announcements and I think the extent to which the public ones so that we still do have this public network so where's the public network going to go because this is all of these announcements are around the actual supercharger network that Tesla is building which is not public so that that will be an interesting dichotomy that that will still play out and it should be interesting to see what happens with the municipalities that are investing and like, where are they going to, where are they going to come down? Yeah. Um, so. It's interesting. I saw a piece that said that uh, in five years, uh, it's possible that only 10% of Tesla's revenue could come from making cars. Uh, the rest come from licensing uh, its, its technologies, uh, particularly its, its self-driving technologies, but also its vehicle charging standard and, and, and which of course will get a ka-ching every time a, a Ford or Chevy rolls out with that, or other or Rivian and some other car makers uh, rolled out with one of their uh, hookups, uh, the, their charging structure. So this is, you know, again another another collaborative evolving story we're going to be seeing uh, evolve over time. So I guess we'll all need to stay plugged in. So Heather, another year, another green fin, another one of our uh, great, fun, energizing events, and another time that you have set up a number of clips that you've pulled from the main stage. Uh, thank you for that. Um, but what do you got for us? So I have three pairs of clips, or three sets of clips, if you will. I'm going to start first with uh, some thoughts from Leo Strine. He's the former Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. He is currently of counsel in the corporate department at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. And so he was in so he was in conversation with Bob Eccles, a very outspoken uh, critic, commentator. On, academic. On, yeah. yeah, he's an academic on ESG issues. And they, they talked a lot about the politics of ESG. Um, but for me, one of the most um, relevant for the corporate world comments that, that Leo Strine made was on why we need to reframe ESG as simply responsible corporate behavior. Like, let's just, okay, People don't like the ESG term, then just talk about it in these terms. And so here's what Leo Strine had to say. I, I think one of the things, one of the, the th things we might leave you with today in thinking about this issue and also why we kind of asked you about whether you know Republicans or the Republicans is we're a diverse nation, right? And part of that diversity is also diversity of thought that you're allowed to have right differences of opinion that's part of kind of an essential part of the animating vision of a just society 
And so you have to think about these issues, realizing that diversity, and also that different institutions have different purposes. Right? And businesses, none of us would be comfortable having businesses become orthodoxies, right? There are many communities in which there aren't that many employers. I don't know about you, but I, I often have spend more of my waking hours of my life under the roof of my employer than I do with my family when you're awake, right? And so it's important that we have places of employment that are tolerant and where people of different beliefs can come together. And as long as they come together in good faith and treat each other well, um, that that's okay. They can have differences of belief. When we think about climate or any kind of issues, part of what's been happening with this debate is do companies have the legitimacy, right, to speak for everybody about divisive issues? And you have to think about that, and part of why we ask is you have to think about that when you're on the other side of the issue, right? When a company is going to say something or may impose something on its employees or an orthodoxy that you don't believe in. And so what I've been talking about is thinking of ESG really as making money the right way. And what we mean by that, Bob, is, is do you, are your products and services safe and not fraudulent? Do they make people's lives better? Do your employees come to work and have a safe place to work? Do you treat them well and pay them well so they can make a better life for their family? Do you pay your taxes in your community and support the local institutions? Do you avoid polluting the environment? When you think about it that way and you think about climate in that lens, it becomes less divisive because polls show that overwhelming percentages of all Americans think that companies should do those things. And so when you think about climate, I think, well, it's, 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 it's an aspect of, frankly, do we not pollute the environment? It is a form of pollution. And it's also for companies in every industry, and we should break this down a little bit, but in companies in many industries, this is a core business risk. Not all industries are the same, but for some industries, climate is an existential business risk that they have to front. I, my, my firm, we represent a reinsurer who, and their primary form of reinsurance is catastrophe storm insurance. How is it that they could run their company, Bob, right, without thinking about that, about climate? They would, in the words of the debate, I would say that the, the folks, Governor DeSantis, if you take his logic, it would be a breach of fiduciary duty for the reinsurer not to think about that, right? Because he wants them to focus on their stockholders. So then I had the good fortune to um, lead a conversation with Lynn Forrester de Rothschild. She's the founder and co-chair of Inclusive Capital Partners and Ron O'Hanley, chairman and CEO of State Street. So they were uh, in conversation with me about the case for engagement. So the, the, the process of going out to a company and, con and convincing them to, to change their behavior rather than divesting. So we talked about a little bit about that and divestment. But I actually put to them the question of whether or not stakeholder engagement prioritiz prioritizes values versus value, right? Over value. Um, I asked them to both address a critic that would make that statement. And here's what both of them had to say. Well, I mean, I would just say it's simply not true. 
Uh, again, I go back to we are very long-term holders uh, of, of, a, of a company. As long as it's in the index, we'll be an investor in it. And if you think about risk, investment risk, you know, risk, risk is nothing more than the proposition that more things can happen that will happen. Mm -hmm. And if you add time to that, um, and you think about over time, the amount of things that can happen multiplies. So for us, it's all about this proposition. We're permanent, we're a permanent holder here. Uh, we have to think about the long term, not just the next quarter, not just the next year, but what are those things that actually could change things? I mean, very basically, if you think about um, an oil and gas company, how do you think about demand? Um, if, if demand's going down, which it should go down as renewables grow, you know, what is, where are you going to put your capital? Are you going to continue to put it into a declining asset or are you going to put it into, as Lynn was describing, into renewables? So for us, it's all about value. Uh, we've all got our personal set of values. They actually don't belong in portfolio management on behalf of others. Your personal portfolio management, have at it. But for us, it's all about value and the value being created for the actual owners of the capital. I personally find that, like dichotomy, a total cheap shot. Because, because we've got to step back. What is the purpose of the corporation? The purpose of the corporation is to profitably solve the problems of people and planet, not to become part of the planet's problems. And so we can lose our entire ability to, to survive in society if we're going to only support companies that create great shareholder value but destroy lives or destroy the planet. So it's not really values versus value. It's, it's what is the purpose of the corporation, which is another thing that I think is fundamental to what every investor, what every CEO should be thinking about as a North Star. And then finally, one of my favorite conversations, uh, I was fangirling. We had Sen Senator Edward Markey of, of Massachusetts. It was awesome. He was uh, came with Mindy Luber from Ceres. Just a, a, a conversation about the importance of, of policy, the importance of transparency, right? And that actually is what I wanted to focus on. His, his comments on why corporate transparency is absolutely critical to inspire the clean economy transition. I just thought they were very insightful and also very, uh, very Senator Markey, just very matter of fact and kind of out, you know, to the point. So here's, here's Senator Markey. Just let people see what's going on uh, inside of your company. You, you can't preach temperance from a bar stool. <laughs> you can't tell the rest of the world to do something if you're not doing it yourself. You can't tell people. Yeah. You can't tell people, you can't tell a kid not to smoke a cigarette with a cigar in your mouth, right? So you've got to be the leader yourself. And that's essentially uh, what a lot of these transparency issues are all about. Just so that this, the advertising of the one or two good things that a corporation might be doing, uh, in many instances, is meant to mask the other more nefarious, dangerous activities that that same corporation is uh, financing or engaging in. So, so, so much of what um, the Securities Exchange Commission um, climate disclosure rule debate is about is just how much disclosure should a corporation make, including, you know, in scope three, throughout its entire supply chain, mm -hmm. just so that 
the world can see it. Investors can see it. Uh, and perhaps even their own employees can see it. Uh, so that they can be lobbying internally in order to uh, make a difference. So uh, we've come a long way in a relatively brief period of time. Uh, much of it is driven by uh, young people. Um, when I introduced uh, with Henry Waxman the Waxman-Markey bill in 2009 and got it passed on uh, the House floor, it died in the Senate. We did not have a movement at that time, which is why I then went to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and I said to her uh, in late 2018, we should introduce a Green New Deal so that we create a, um, a movement that creates the momentum so we would have a moment then when we finally passed the legislation, which is what happened uh, last August uh, with the $369 billion turning into $800 billion, turning into $1.2 trillion, which is going out into uh, the marketplace. And to the extent to which we need the same thing in transparency, uh, that will help these young people, these young voters, to police um, uh, corporate America to make sure uh, that they're actually putting their money where, uh, where their mouth says that they're putting it. Well, Heather, as we said, this is this is uh, end of an era for us. We've talked, as I said before, a lot about partnerships and collaborations uh, that are taking place out there in the world on this. And I just you want to thank my collaboration with you um, over these, I don't know how many years. I mean, this podcast, many hours, yeah, many hours, probably five or six years that we've been doing this together. We mm -hmm. uh, uh, had uh, a previous co-host when we first launched this in 2015. Um, and, you know, things uh, have their cycles, and this is the end of one. Um, it's been such a, a joy and an honor to work with you and to, you know, come together every week and figure out, well, what do we want to talk about? Uh, what's new? What's different? What's different from what we talked about the last few weeks? And, and, and what's, what's engaging to us, and will that be engaging to the audience? It's, it's such, uh, yeah, you know, I don't think either of us, you know, I guess we could have done this on our own. Uh, we we both are, you know, been around, been been there and done that for long enough that we could carry this. And um, but it's been it's been really special just being able to do this together. Um, and uh, so thank you. And uh, I, I I know that you're going to pick this up in the fall, and and maybe you'll have me back once or once in a while, if, depending on the format and if I'm if I'm nice to you and say please and things like that. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll see. You know, we're. There's a lot evolving, uh, as you well know, in our editorial strategy. Uh, we have some some terrific new talent. Uh, uh, you know, Allison Fast, who comes from uh, Inc. and Fast Company, who's leading that editorial charge, and uh, with along with Jim Giles, our our SVP of product and content. And we've got a lot of cool things in in the offing. And one of them, I think, is going to be the new version of this podcast uh, that you're going to be leading. And um, you know. We'll see other things that evolve, maybe on the podcast front as well, beyond this. So, yeah. So, thank you. Well, so, Joel, thank you. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have learned so much over the last, whatever, five years. We're on this episode 370. I can't remember where exactly I came in, but a couple hundred episodes ago, so at least. Yeah. I'm just grateful for the opportunity to learn a lot about this form of media. I actually hadn't really done, I hadn't done any 
podcasting before and I've learned quite a bit. I also, though, in I think that my ability to pick stories now for our team and to actually or for myself is has really been shaped by being able to tap into your knowledge and the ability to have this conversation. Because every time I have a conversation on this podcast, I've learned a tremendous amount. And I, I love also that we don't always agree. In fact, you know, we, we don't, we often don't agree. Yeah. And that's to me has, has been a wonderful learning experience for me. And I, I just wanted to thank you for helping me find my voice because I really do think that's been part of this journey. And I'm going to miss the heck out of you. Yeah. This is so well, sad. I'm not disappearing. I know. I'll be back and, uh, and, and it'll just be different. But yeah, I know you have a great voice in this. And I, and I know that others think that too. And it'll be exciting to hear what you do with that. But, you know, this is yours now. I'm handing the baton. So you take us home with the outro. Well, that's a wrap for the week and for an era. We're pushing pause for the summer, but I'll be back this fall with a new format. So keep an eye or ear out for when it drops, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I also encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, Climate Tech Rundown, at www.com slash newsletters hyphen subscribe, where I'll be sure to let you know when we relaunch. From all of us here at GreenBiz, I'm Heather Clancy. See you in September. September.